Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. As a high school English and social studies teacher, I had no unique skills or training to become a religious studies teacher other than a teaching certificate, a curious worldview, and some undergraduate courses in religious studies. I was asked if I were interested in teaching a religious studies course to seniors, and I accepted, simple as that. I had a great mentor who taught the material for more than 25 years who was very helpful. I'm sure that I made many mistakes over the years, but the students and I were on a journey together, and it just worked. So I taught many religions I had never practiced in my religious studies courses. I brought in insider perspectives when I could in the form of guest speakers, but for the most part, I was a complete outsider to these beliefs, faiths, and philosophies. That said, my qualifications to teach the class were also never challenged. For example, nobody ever said to me, you aren't Jewish, so you can't teach Judaism. I received the benefit of the doubt, always, without a PhD in religious studies or even a bachelor's degree in the content. So the guest on this episode is Dr. Simran Jeet Singh, and he is someone who does have a PhD in religious studies, and he is someone who has been challenged for teaching about a religion he doesn't practice. So Singh is a columnist for Religion News Service, senior fellow at the Sikh Coalition, he's chaplain at New York University and Columbia University, and the Governor's Interfaith Advisory Committee for the State of New York. Dr. Singh's recent piece in Religion News Service is called How Colonialism Still Colors Our Ideas About Who Gets to Teach Religion. In the article, he recounts his credibility being challenged by a colleague because he was teaching about Buddhism with students when he himself is not a Buddhist, he's sick. I have taught Buddhism many times and was never questioned about not being Buddhist. So in a sit-down at my house a few days before Christmas in 2019, Dr. Singh and I chatted about the complexities of teaching about religion, his books, the religious and journalistic visibility of Sikhs in the United States, and more. You can find his work at SimranjeetSingh.com, on Twitter at SikhProf, and as host of the Spirited Podcast, where he's interviewed guests such as Representative Ilhan Omar and the comedian Hari Kondabalu on issues such as faith and justice. These links and a link to the Religion News Service article referenced earlier are available in the show notes. So, without further delay, here is my conversation with Dr. Simranjeet Singh, recorded in Buffalo, New York. Very nice. So, what do you uh, like about Buffalo? Um, I like how chill it is. It's pretty low key. Um, you know, after being in New York City, I spent the last two days in coffee shops. Yeah. And, uh, it's kind of embarrassing to admit where I went, but I went to uh, Whole Foods. I <laughs> yeah, love I loved when stores. you texted me from there yesterday. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I mentioned that to you. Yeah. Uh, I love grocery stores, like big open grocery stores, and they have decent coffee and a space to walk around where I don't have to be in the snow. So, yeah. Yeah, I like the openness. I like wings. Wings are nice. Yeah. And where I've do you go? Wings. What's your place? Uh, I've come to be a Duff's person. Okay. Do you I go the extra crispy like Obama? I go extra crispy. I'd never had wings until I came to Buffalo for the first time, like... I guess about 14, 15 years ago. Nice. And now it's like, yeah, every time I'm here. Do you do you come every year? Do you come every, like, often? Um, yeah, so my in-laws are here. Okay, so cool. So come at least twice a year. Um, you know, it's a short flight from New York. Sure. I mean, it's a cheap flight, too. Is your uh, is your partner, like, a Buffalo person, like, born and raised? Uh, not born. So she was born in India, uh, in Amritsar, Punjab. Uh, spent some of her time in Iowa after moving here. 
and then they moved to Buffalo. So my father-in-law is a professor at yeah. UB. Um, but they're, she's not born and raised here, but she's hard hardcore Buffalo. Buffalo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the people who are here, man, like, it's like, <laughs> I mean, I'm wearing like a Buffalo <laughs> yeah. band shirt that's like a mashup of the Sabres right now. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, well, awesome. Well, welcome to my home. Um, I love having people over to talk about uh, their areas of interest and expertise on the show, and it's just such a cool vibe to have like the in-person dynamic. You know, it just changes it up a little bit versus you know recording over Skype and Zoom and things like that. So, welcome to our house, and yeah, I'm so glad you. that you're here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Simranjit Singh, professor, writer, activist, podcaster, podcaster colleague, if I may, <laughs> uh, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you just um? Introduce yourself a tiny little bit to the audience and maybe say uh, what some of your favorite projects are that you got going on right now. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm uh, born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, sick, sick American. So, uh, follow, so follow the sick tradition. Hoping we'll talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Um, big Spurs fan because I'm from San Antonio. That's important to myself and my family. And David Robinson, man, old school. David Robinson was just drafted right when I was starting to watch. TV and sports and stuff, and so that's what I grew up with. It was Robinson and Duncan, so yeah, basketball is big. Sports are big to me. Um, yeah, and now I, I live in New York City with my family. I teach, I write, I, I, I like that stuff. Uh, the big projects, I guess there are there are three. Uh, one is the podcast, uh, yeah. Spirited, which has been a lot of fun, just um, interviewing leaders that I admire from various walks of life about how they bring their beliefs into the way that they live their lives. So yeah. thinking about what integrity and justice looks like based on our value systems, whatever they might be. You know, and I love the fact about podcasts that it 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 gives us this opportunity to, you know, talk to people that we never would have otherwise had the chance to talk to and create these new like relationships and expand our own minds. Like it's like the ultimate avenue for me for like maintaining a curiosity about the world. Yeah, exactly. So this is my first season. I just started, and that's what I keep telling people. If I if I'd known this was available as a profession, as a career, as yeah. a, as even as a hobby, like I've been doing it a long time ago because it's just fun. You just sit there and you learn from people that you respect and you want to learn from. It's it's really cool. Yeah. Well, and um, another thing I know that you have a hobby is is running, mm-hmm. and I know that you're a marathoner. Do you have any favorite marathons uh, that you would suggest people check out if they're runners? Well, my my favorite is is the largest in the world new york city that's where i started mm. um your first marathon was new york city marathon first, yeah oh dude come on that's yeah, great exactly and so you can't really uh, go down from there um but it's i mean the vibe is amazing there you have fans and spectators and supporters for the entire 26 miles so it's really fun um Detroit was also really fun. My wife ran Detroit. Oh yeah, she really liked it across to Canada. Yeah, when you run through the bridge to Windsor. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I really enjoyed that marathon. So, yeah, that's a good one too. Excellent. Well, you should come do Buffalo sometime too, because it's the end of May, and uh, the weather, the average weather is like sixty degrees. Last year we had fog that was in off the lake, so we were completely shrouded in fog, like almost the entire race. And you finish in the Bills Stadium, right? You don't finish in the Bills Stadium okay, because that's down south in Orchard Park, but you I do see. amazing circuits through downtown and Allentown and Elmwood Village. And I mean, the, the scenery, the whole route is really great. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Well, the reason why I was really excited to have you on the show is because um, we get to talk about teaching a lot mm. and teaching as religion, religious studies folks. Um, like I'm more of in the high school area. You're more of in the higher education level, but it's a convergence that you and I have. And I want to talk about the importance of providing 
powerful learning opportunities mm-hmm. for all people with regards to religion. So here we are, two people who have taught about the religions of the world, me at the secondary, you at the post-secondary. And we've both taught about religions that we don't personally practice mm. to hundreds, if not thousands, of people in our classrooms, you know, throughout the last however many years of our careers. Um, and you recently had an experience that I wanted to ask you about, and you had your legitimacy as an objective educator sort of called into question, mm. right? And I'm curious if you can say your version of events like ed, that you can recall, because I find that teaching about religions that you don't practice is um, very uh, interesting, mm. and I love doing it. Um, and I'm curious if you can say how how that ex- that negative experience transpired for you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess um, the short the short story is uh, I was at a conference with about ten thousand scholars of religion. Um, probably the nerdiest place you could ever ever be. Love it. I follow the like the hashtags <laughs> from oh, those yeah, conferences, yeah, yeah. and I love it's it. Hilarious. Um, and so I'm teaching I'm teaching Buddhism this year uh, at the graduate level. Uh, it's a course this semester. It's uh, uh, global histories of Buddhism. Next semester it's Indo Tibetan Buddhism. Oh, very cool. Um, so I'm teaching at the graduate level, um, and it's not it's not it's not what people would assume that I teach because I'm a Sikh, and so I ran into a few folks who asked what I'm teaching, and I I mentioned Buddhism, um, and I had a couple of responses where people like someone said something like. Oh well, isn't that a conflict of interest? You're a Sikh teaching Buddhism, like, don't you, you must be biased, right? That's the mm. assumption. Um, and somebody else said something like, just straight up, like, well, you're not even Buddhist, and um, you know, fine, like, those are observations. Yeah, those are like factually <laughs> true things. <laughs> yeah, I, so so I, I understand that, but I also think, um, and and I know that there is a double standard when it comes to people who come from other, well, let me say it this way. Um, I think it's racialized. Yeah. Me being uh, a Sikh who is in the academy that's teaching about something that's not my own faith um, seems to strike people as uh, confusing or inappropriate, whereas the entire academy is filled with people, mostly white folks, who are teaching traditions they don't practice right. and we don't really uh, question the legitimacy of that. And so that's, that was to me, you know, the, the comments themselves weren't really upsetting. It's more, it's more that it comes when it comes from people who are within the field itself. Yeah. Um, and don't realize that these double standards exist and, and then sort of perpetuate them. That to me is kind of like, Oh, let's at least understand what we're doing here. Well, and the thing that's really interesting to me about that is that that has never happened to me Mm, personally. Like I taught in the middle of Missouri in the high school level, but I taught about Sikhism, Jainism, Hinduism, Mm -hmm. Islam, Christianity, Judaism. I talked about plenty of things that I don't personally do and no one ever batted an eyelash about that, you know? So whenever you talk about the racialized thing, um, I'm sitting here, a 36-year-old, upper-middle-class-raised white man from St. Louis, Missouri, teaching about religions of the world that, personally, like, I'm not even an expert in, but because I had a teaching certificate in that particular state, in that particular content area, I was allowed to do it, and I was given total legitimacy to do mm-hmm. it, even though I didn't hold graduate degrees at those in those subjects. You know, I just found them to be interesting and compelling and worth discussing for young people of the world, but I could have been doing a terrible job and my legitimacy was never called into question. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. And you know, I, before this position, I was teaching Islamic studies in Texas. And, yeah, you know, people people did say the same thing, right? Like people often said, "Well, you're a sick teaching us." Even when I interviewed for the job, somebody said that. You mm. know, what are you, what are you doing as a sick teaching Islam? It was, it's a, it's a common question, and it under it, it's undergirded by these assumptions of who has authority and who has bias and these sorts of things. Um, but the difference in this situation was. I had never been questioned by fellow scholars. That was shocking to me. In Texas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was always sort of like lay people, students, you know, everyday Texans. Sure. Um, but when it comes from a scholar, it's like, oh, wait, I I think you would agree with me if you, you would agree with me, with my critique of you, if you took a step back and realized the assumptions behind what you're saying right here like and, and and they did for the most part the people that i talked to so so um can you d- describe like why you think it's totally fine for somebody who is a scholar or a teacher to teach about religions that they don't personally practice because i know that you have an insider outsider perspective mm-hmm. on that that you write about in the piece that um i read on what was the what publication did you put that piece in uh religion news service i have a regular column there yeah excellent so if you read that article i mean that's what we're talking about here and in there, you write about the insider perspective of teaching and the outsider perspective of teaching. Mm-hmm. What are the pros and cons of those two, you know, terms? Well, I think, I mean, there's a lot. There, there are a lot of pros and cons. The, the easy ones to identify, I think, are when you're teaching your, a tradition that you practice or that you identify with. Um, you might have some personal attachment to it and want others to like it. And mm. so you, you, you might uh, downplay some of the problems mm, or yes. um, hide some of the uh, ways in which that tradition is engaged in oppression or violence or anything that might be construed as negative. Yeah. So I think that, to me, that's the big one when it comes to like, well, you must be biased if you're a Sikh teaching Sikhism. That doesn't seem right. We want an objective perspective. Sure. On the other hand, um, coming in as an outsider, one might say, well, um, you understand this tradition intellectually, um, but if religion is about experience and practice, what can you really say to that? You might be able to describe it, but do you really feel it? Are you really able to then communicate it mm. and transmit that to your students? So that's, I mean, that's uh, a common critique of people who are coming in from the outside. Do you actively teach courses about Sikhism as well? I have. Um, I have, and I enjoyed it more than I thought I would even. So, okay. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, well, I think generally I like teaching about religion for, for a couple of reasons. One is because it's not something that we teach as a society to our kids, you know, different religious traditions and sure. different ways of thinking. Um I find it to be really powerful and transformative for people to come to realize that there are other ways of living and being in this world and to expand their minds in that way and to, to learn how to accept that and, and humanize people who are different. Like that's, that to me is really rewarding. Um, the other part of, of teaching religion generally is because it's just something that I love right yeah. not just my own tradition but i just find religion so fascinating and so beautiful and powerful um and interesting even when it's not beautiful even when it's mm. you know 
crazy and well it matters horrible, right yeah you know? exactly exactly and so i because i love it so much i just love sharing that love with other people can you give like do you have any examples of things that jump out at you uh whenever you're teaching about sickism from the insider perspective things that you're able to do that like a non-sick like me would do in my own classroom like what do you how, how do you feel like that really boosts your abilities as opposed to someone like me teaching about it well i think it's it's a really good question um in a way that I'm not able to do for Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism, which are other traditions that I teach, I can reach into my own training as a Sikh um, and talk about stories or uh, memories or ways of living that are authentic as lived traditions yeah. in a way that I can't really with any of the other the other religions that I teach. And so like... It's very easy for me to go back into my own training as a Sikh and say, well, this is this is the way that Sikhs transmit scripture. Like, sure. I, this is how I learned it from my parents. This is how I'd repeat it. This is how we would sing it. And this is how I observe Sikhs across the world doing it. Whereas I, the only way that I've seen that in other traditions is on YouTube where mm. I've read about it. And so, like, it's not really ingrained in me so deeply that if somebody asks me, well, what what are the first stories that kids learn about the Prophet Muhammad? I don't I don't necessarily know. And I might be reading about it, but it's it's always secondhand, I guess, is the point. Yeah. Whereas that first hand piece, it just comes so naturally and it feels so so much more authentic. Well, yeah, and there's a uh, there's a Gurdwara down the street from my house here, mm -hmm. um, just a mile, you know, mm -hmm. right here on Main Street, down in Williamsville, New York. And Every time I go past there, um, you know, I think about, I'm thinking about those experiences of me driving past the Gurdwara right now, mm. and I'm thinking about how your life experiences from inside the building versus my experiences from outside the building yeah, driving yeah, past, yeah. and how that would be such a more powerful um, teaching moment in a classroom. Do you ever have, like, um, guests come in to talk to your students whenever you are doing a semester of a religion that you don't personally practice? I do. I mean, I try to do both, whether, whether I practice it or not. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is I, I really, I really think that one of the dangers of teaching religion is, and, and one of the dangers we have in how we think about religion is, is we always try and say, well, what does this religion believe or what does this religion teach? And, and we all know as people that, things are more complicated than that, that like religions are interpreted by different people differently. Mm. And um, even though I am a scholar and an expert on religion, that doesn't necessarily mean that whatever I think a religion should look like is what it should look like, right? Like I'm, I'm, I have an authority in a classroom, but not yeah. necessarily in a religious tradition. And so like keeping that balance is really important, I think. You just said the word complicated, and uh, that's one of the things that I would always say to my students. Like, they would ask me a question, and I would say, well, it depends. That was, like, the answer to, like, almost all the yeah, exactly. times they ever asked me questions. It's a good teaching trick. Um, how, do you, uh, how do you complicate and make your students aware of the insider-outsider perspective, like, over the course of an entire semester? Like, do you constantly refer back to the insider versus outsider perspective in your own classroom? Um. The insider-outsider perspective, not so much. Um, well, I think it depends on the level of the student, I guess. 
um, at the introductory undergraduate level, I think that's a really important and helpful distinction for people who have never really thought about it before. Yeah. Um, so I imagine if I'm teaching high school students as well, um, that would be a really important node for helping people understand their own position in relation to a tradition, which then helps you understand other people's positions. I think one of the things um, that I've become more interested in, um, especially now that I'm teaching graduate students who are more sort of sophisticated in their understanding of religion, um, is actually now instead of going horizontal from like what is the insider outsider now i find myself going vertical mm. and saying like well what does the history of the category of religion look like where does it come from who made it up like it was made up at some point right um how is how is that history what does that history tell us about the power dynamics and why does it end up being that these people get to make the rules and these people get left out or these people get marginalized or these people get erased or whatever right so like that to me has become a more interesting play uh, for more you know advanced students in part because it really helps me think about other aspects of this world not just about religion but like why is the world the way that it is right it's not just because of these horizontal dynamics, it's also like things have been building up over history, and that's really been changing the course of how we relate to one another and how we see ourselves. You know, after I read this uh, this article that you sent me about your experience at the conference, mm -hmm. where somebody questioned your like ability to teach Buddhism, yeah. I, I waded down below in the comments section a little bit oh. in that article <laughs> yeah, into the that. muck. <laughs> and I made it like two or three comments and I just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. And you know, the amount of time that people spend on like insanely unproductive commentary into the internet void is really baffling to me. Sure. Um, but you are very, very active on Twitter, mm. on writing for mass audiences, uh, on you know putting yourself out there in these situations, and you sort of talked about this a little bit with Hari Kondabalu on your podcast. But um, you know, how do you deal with these uh, these very these very you know negative pushbacks whenever you say that like, because they're constantly commenting on words like racialized, marginalized, like they're pushing back on these things. Like, how do you do? You have any strategies for staying sane in this in this in these conversations? Because you're so public with it, you're so out there and so present. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think strategy number one is never never look at the comments. I think that's something I learned early because that's that's accessible. Do your mentions just get destroyed on Twitter like every day? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think um, it's for me one of the harder things has been figuring out how to strike the balance. Like I, I I've had personal trouble taking seriously the the hate that comes my way because most of the time it's anonymous and it doesn't seem real yeah um but i've i've actually had to be talked into um taking it more seriously for safety consideration sure for my family and now now that i have kids like thinking about that sort of thing um but in terms of staying sane i think there are two things for me i think one is um it's it's one of the things my parents taught me as a kid was that it's really important to have your values clear. Like, what, what are your values? Why are you doing what you do? And if you use those as your guideposts, um, then when you, I guess it, it keeps you out of trouble. You're, you're, 
you're always intentional about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And so for me, um, I look at all of this work as education, like everything comes through the lens of education. And so that is, that helps me stay sane that I don't sort of get diverted or um, lost in, in trying to deal with some of that stuff. Does your uh, training in your life as in Sikhism, does that, uh, you know, does that advance your educational goal in that regard? I mean, I guess in, in this regard, particularly, I guess one of the advantages I could say I have is that I've been dealing with hate and racism since I was a kid. And mm. so like I had to learn from elementary school, like, what do you do when people treat you differently because of how you look? Um, and so that I think that helped me develop a thick skin. Um, I'm still like dispositionally, I'm still like a people pleaser. Yeah. And so that's I have a thick skin in terms of when somebody is racist, it doesn't bother me. Mm. Um, what bothers me, what's hard for me is when the people that I'm hoping to serve uh, dislike me for some reason, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those criticisms are valid. I agree with them. Um, but they're a lot of times overly simplistic. And so that, that to me is hard. How do I sort of show that balance and when do I engage and, and how do I engage or do I engage? Did you follow the uh, recent Canadian election with the NDP candidate Jagmeet Singh? I did. Yeah. And one of my upcoming podcast interviews is with them. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, did you two talk about this issue at all of like growing up and like realizing like that people see you in a different way than you can't just like be a kid from like growing up? <laughs> we didn't talk about it uh, the, in our conversation. I look forward to hearing that one. Yeah. That was such an interesting election too because the way that he was constantly dealing with uh, people coming at him and the way that he was respond in the moment. Yeah. I was blown away because like in moments like that, if somebody was coming at me with the way, with the, the vitriol and the burning desire to be against me, right, the right, way right. that he would respond was so incredible, yeah. you know? I mean, it was just very moving. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, one of the things I spend a lot of my time with the civil rights organization and, you know, working on the front lines of hate, one of the things I've really been impressed by is that pretty much every single hate crime that I've worked on, witnessed, um, you know, it's been consistently true that the person who has been targeted has responded in a very similar way where it's, you know, I, I'll say it this way, like it's, it's been very rare for me to see people in my own community respond to hate with hate. Mm. Um, and that, that's been really inspirational to me. So, so part of the book, uh, that I'm working on right now is, is exploring that question. Like where, do, where does that come from? It's not, it's not necessarily human nature. We don't, we don't see that all over the world. And so, uh, what is it about sick teachings in particular that, uh, enables that, or at least inspires that sort of action? Is it the book you just referred to? Is that your book that's coming out in 2021? Yes, exactly. So it's the uh, from what I gathered, it's an adult nonfiction book on sick wisdom for our current times. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So what can readers expect, and why would you uh, why would you encourage any curious person, not just six, but any curious person? Why would you um, encourage them to anticipate that book? What's firing you up about writing this book? Um, 
Well, there, there are a few things. I think, I think one of the interesting aspects of the sick experience in America today is we're so visible. Mm. Like I walk in, I was working at a coffee shop before coming here. Um, turban, beard, brown skin in a context where like people don't really see that. And people in the, co- I mean, people in the coffee shop were looking at me and like sure. wondering what, what I was doing there. And I was drinking coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, what else what yeah. am I supposed to say? Um, like, so we're so highly visible. Everybody notices wherever we are. Um, and yet nobody knows who we are. Like yeah. nobody in America knows who six are. Like it's the world's fifth largest religion. And yet um, it's our cultural literacy around religion generally is poor. Um, but our literacy around six is horrible. Like, you know, 70% of Americans don't know who six are. And so for me, one of the exciting things about the book is like, this is a way to introduce the tradition. And, you know, I could do that through a textbook. Um, but to me, that's not, that's not exciting. And even the way we were talking about teaching religion before, like, I don't find it interesting, even as a scholar of religion, to teach religion through um, some formula of, like, what is the history of the scripture and what is the history of the prophethood and that, right? Like right. It's, it's about, like, who are these people and what do they do and why do they do it? Like, what what life force does this tradition have and how does it pertain to our world today? And so that, to me, is what's exciting about the book. Like, what are the big burning questions of our lives today and then what does Siki have to teach us which i think is for me at least has been super powerful the uh the visibility thing that you just mentioned is really important to me and um, i keep thinking of the uh the daily show segment with waris abdualia where he's like um you know being interviewed about like pumping gas yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, things yeah. like that is <laughs> cracking me up but um you know just somebody who might be listening, like a lot of people who listen to this show are are very informed on religion, but I also do have a lot of people that have, you know, they're very much beginners and they just want to listen to the show because they know that I'm not going to talk about it in a, like a super thick academic way. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I want this to be accessible. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about the basics of how to recognize a sick, like in public, like what are the articles of faith that you can see people? Cause you mentioned that visibility, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but people don't understand the visibility, then they're going to misunderstand it. So how, maybe you could talk a little bit about that just very briefly. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess the place to begin is um, the sort of, meat and potatoes of sick identity when we talk about it um is is the turban and beard and it's it's a sort of it's a weird thing that's come to be um it's it's weird that this has become to be the way that we think about sex because that is a very particular form of the identity right like that's only men Mm -hmm. with the beards right Right. so like that's half the population that gets erased in that in that image itself yeah um so, but but it's also true that the turban and the beard become hallmarks of the tradition when this community is pretty much only talked about as victims of hate crimes in this country. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of where that comes from. Um, but there's a, there's a in addition to the turban and the beard, um, there are w- what you described as articles of faith. There are five articles of faith that we maintain. Um, the two most noticeable are. Uh, a bracelet uh, that six wear on their wrists um, and uh, uncut hair case is what we called it. And um, 
And those are those are the two sort of outward expressions that one can see on a six body if they're in public. So if there's a woman too, she would still have the the steel bracelet, right? Exactly. Okay. Everyone has everyone has the bracelet. I think that to me in my understanding that is the most common of the forms of the identity. Like every sick that I know whether they wear a turban or not, whether they cut their hair or not still wears that bracelet. Yeah. And then the second most common is the uncut hair. Yeah. And that's also true for men and women. Um, neither cut their hair. Um, most men who keep their hair wrapped in turbans, and then some women do as well. Um, but it's it's long uncut, or at least mine was long. And then now, uh, hitting mid thirties, it's starting to oh thin out <laughs> a little bit. Starting to thin out. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. yeah. I'm. Uh, oh, there we go. Yeah, exactly. I, I am in this, I am in that club, my friend. There is nothing going on on top of my head. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the nice thing about a turban. Like nobody nobody needs to know. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> Another thing, like there, there's like uh, a dagger, right? Mm-hmm. And one time I had a guest speaker come into my classroom and talk to my high school students, and they were like, "What about a dagger? I heard there's a dagger." And he pulled out a necklace with a pendant on it, and the pendant was the dagger. There mm. was a teeny tiny little pendant uh, for the dagger that he wore around his neck every day. Yeah, yeah, and and there are different six who who feel differently. Well, the six who carry the dagger, some some do. It's called a gerban. Some uh, maintain it as the traditional you know, larger dagger that you wear on your body and say that a pendant would not count as one of those, but some believe that the pendant counts. And so it's just another example of how uh, diverse religions are within that, like people, people who are, who have equal authority in claiming their devotion to Sikhism practice it very differently. Have you ever gone to the Golden Temple of Amritsar? I have, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I've only seen it in videos, and it is stunning and overwhelming, and I imagine that it's uh, quite interesting in person as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, you know, India India is a different place. That's probably the most obvious thing I've (laughs) said in a while. Um, But, you know, even living in New York City and, like, the the rush of New York, like, I feel like India is intense. Like, the population density is high. Like, Manhattan is mellow compared. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's loud. It's There are a lot of people, like, all that sort of thing. And I've never found a more peaceful place than the Golden Temple, which is in the middle of this, like, historic big city, Amritsar. And on a, it's a border town. Like, it's right on the edge of Pakistan. So, like, it's really interesting location. Um it's, I guess, one of my favorite things in the world is going to places where you can witness devotion of people. Like, in religion, so many people are religious, but they're not necessarily sincere. Mm. And so to see, like, sincere devotion where people are just literally, like, spending their lives with the most earnest love that you can ever see, like... I find that powerful. And it's not, you know, I see it at the Golden Temple. There are other religious traditions and places where I've seen this sort of thing. Um, But the Golden Temple, to me, every time I go, it's like, wow, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing to just be a part of. Like, I feel like it's it's historic. And then it's also like this sense of community where, yeah, the love I feel there is unparalleled. How many times have you gone? Uh, I can't remember. You know, I've spent a few summers... I spent, I've spent summers in Amritsar, and so nice. Yeah, so you try to put eyes on that thing, on that building, often whenever you visit. I'd yeah, imagine. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and um, 
yeah, it never really gets old either. So yeah. you can go every day and it's a fresh experience. Um, so you mentioned earlier about how the way that Sikhs are seen in the media in the United States and oftentimes whenever w- they are given visibility in the media, it's like as victims of a certain crime or, you know, uh, a hate crime. And you have a, a book that you put out called Covering Six, and it's like a guidebook for journalists covering Sikhism accurately. Mm-hmm. Um what can you tell me a little bit about that? Are there any positive results that you've seen from that book where journalists have been like, thank you for that. Here's what I've, here's how I'm changing my practices. Have you seen any results come your way? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the clear differences we've seen over the past 10 years, uh, 20 years since 9-11, you could say is like 20 years ago, there was little to no coverage of Sikhism. I mean, six have been in this country for a hundred years and for the whole time we've been invisible. Um, and, and it's been painful for the community that we, we have not been a part of any conversation. Um, after nine 11, we realized as a community that that had to change, that there is real, uh, danger in being so unknown and so, um, and so misunderstood. And so, we started to think about that and and one of the outcomes was well if journalists aren't covering us let's understand why and as i started getting into that world a little bit uh, i learned that people who cover religion are scared to cover religions they don't know Mm. because that's hard and if you misrepresent something you're in trouble yeah and so it's it's a tough job for a journalist who's expected to know a lot about a lot of different things. I mean, even if you're just covering religion, like there's no scholar that I know who can teach all the r- different religions. Like nobody does that. Right. And so for journalists, what we realized was to help mitigate some of those fears, they needed some resources that they could go to and trust um, where they could say, okay, I want to do a story on Sikhism. This is good, basic information i could use to supplement my work and so that's what we did that's why we put out that resource um and we've seen quite a bit of uh quite a good increase in in coverage of sikhism in journalism and so that's that's been quite positive do you have any journalists that you um you know collaborate with or communicate with regularly that you wanted uh you know send people their way as far as like who who should who should uh who like who do you read who do you want to promote kind of thing oh yeah sure in the in the religion world um you know in terms of uh broadcast um there are two folks uh who i work with quite closely dina zingaro at um 60 minutes cbs oh cool and liz kinicky was also at a cbs religion and culture uh and now she's freelancing um in in the print world uh, I've worked a lot with Javed Kalim, who's at LA Times, fantastic religion and race reporter. Excellent. Um, great, a great beat. Uh, Kelsey Dallas at Deseret News. Kelsey Dallas's articles are great. I read her all the time. Yeah, she's uh, she's always putting out like, um, she has this really special ability to to consolidate and distill really complicated things into ways that even i can understand awesome so yeah yeah i really like kelsey's stuff um who else do i like i i really like um the work of uh 
Julie Zosmer at Washington Post. Yeah. And Sarah Pulliam Bailey and Michelle Borstein. That team is quite good as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, so I want to talk, spend a little bit of time talking about your podcast, Spirited. Mm, sure. How did that come about, um, and why did you decide to go that route of getting into this world of podcasting? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. It's it's not something I ever imagined myself doing. Mm. I mean, I guess like nothing that I'm doing now, other than being in the academic world, is something that I imagined myself doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I grew up as someone who is like deathly afraid of public speaking, uh, all the way through graduate school, actually. And so, um, podcasting or radio in any way it just wasn't on my radar. Um, and about a year ago, I got in touch with some folks who are starting a new audio app called Venly. And uh, it's about sort of spirituality in a way that speaks to young people today who oh, aren't cool. necessarily as interested in institutional religion, yeah, but are still looking for like wisdom and guidance and the kinds of things that they might get from religious teachers. Um, and so I, I started working with them and then we got into this conversation of like, well, these are short perspectives. We call them like f three to five minutes. Yeah. Um, but what would it look like to have long form conversations where we talk about these same issues that we care about, but do it in, in depth with people who we also admire. And so that's, that's where we started getting the idea. I think one of the remarkable things for me, um, in, in that coming together has been the the maturity and humility of the guests that combination has been so cool because yeah. what it means is these people who are like some of the top leaders in the country in whatever fields they're in they'll come to the room with me and they'll start talking about like their real personal challenges uh, and things like stuff that they've really dealt with in their lives in a way that like I'm sitting there. I'm like, you are one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Yeah. And I can't believe you like the kinds of things you're thinking about are also the kinds of things that I think about. So I mean, it's, it's really relatable to me in that sense and like really practical. Well, and you've had uh, Representative Ilhan Omar. Mm -hmm. You've had the fantastic comedian Hari Kondabalu. Mm -hmm. um, and your interesting I and your conversation with Hari was really interesting because you asked him a lot about staying safe. Mm, yeah. And that was a really interesting, that's kind of an interesting parallel to this conversation as well. Where we've talked about like, you know, violence and racialization and marginalization and oppression. Um, do you have any like, you know, thoughts on like what Hari said about, you know, staying safe and things like that in this country as like a religious or a visible minority? Yeah. The conversation with Hari was interesting in, in many ways. I mean, one is because uh, he's a comedian. And so my entire goal was to make him laugh at least once. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and another thing was, I mean, he, he has a background in, in, uh, in human rights and, and yeah. he's in, he's, I mean, brilliant. Um, and so we, that week we had just happened to read Orientalism for class mm. and I, you know, I didn't want to bring it up and like push it on him and like expect, I didn't expect him to, to know it, but like, I shared, he said something and it made me think about something from Said's book and I shared that and he just like totally ate it up and then spit it back out and like gave me something else fresh to think about. Um, so that was super surprising to me in terms of what kinds of things people have within them that doesn't necessarily service as their identity. So like 
you see this comedian talking about mangoes or like being Indian or whatever, you would never think that he has a history of community organizing and human rights and could talk about, you know, Gramsci and Said like he did, right? Like, but it made me really think about these conversations I'm having with people, like who, who has heard Representative Ilhan Omar uh, talk about her personal journey? I mean, it's one of the most remarkable and inspiring journeys that any of us could ever hear about as a refugee, yeah. as an immigrant, as you know, this rise to becoming, you know, a groundbreaking politician. Well, and you can't hear that story. If you stay in one lane. Exactly. You know, and I feel like that's something that we're so bad at is not getting out of our lane. Yeah. You know, as a nation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, it was that conversation with Hari really revealed something to me that was like, it's not just that these people enjoy talking about something that they don't usually get to talk about. It's also that we don't really see them as humans because we're used to like sort of categorizing these people as like, oh, that's a politician and that's a comedian and that's a preacher. And like the preacher can't talk about um, having a therapist, which she did. And I was like, wait, you have a, <laughs> yeah. Pastor Amy Butler, who I interviewed, she talked about her therapist. And I was like, wait, why do pastors need therapists? And yeah. she was like, because we're people. Well, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And the amount of <laughs> things that people put on you as yeah. like a clergy or a religious leader in any community, I would imagine that the baggage that you carry with you every day is so heavy that you have to have somebody to get that out on, you know? Yeah, exactly. No, it, ma- it makes total sense when you think about it. But the problem is, I think, including for myself, like I just never thought about it, that like these people who sort of live their lives and we politicize them in whatever way and categorize them. We just forget to treat them like people. And so that to me has been like the big, the big reveal of the podcast for me, which is like, Hey, these, these are human beings and um, everyone's human being. And like, let's, let's learn how to, how to treat people like that. What have you watched or listened to recently that you would suggest to listeners? Any, like, good movies or series or podcasts that you personally enjoy or things like that that you would direct people towards? Yeah. Um, so there are two uh, films that I've watched recently that I really enjoyed. Um, one was called Clemency. And it's it's in, it's a look into... It's, in, it's a new film. Um, it looks into the issue of... Um, it looks into the issue of death row and and mass incarceration in in a way that I haven't ever seen before um, through the perspective primarily of a prison warden. Um, And, and one of the, I mean, it's, it's beautifully done. It's really powerful. It's really painful. Um, But it was such a weird film to watch in that I was I'm so used to things having a resolution at the end or things to take a turn and mm. become better. And like, it never came. Oh, wow. And it yeah. was, it was so striking to walk away from that and be like, Oh yeah, this is, it's not just that this is something that's continuing to happen today. It's also the people who live this as part of their realities. Like they don't ever get any resolution, whether you're on the side of being executed or your family member or you're on the on the side of the warden or an officer, and and so yeah, just the the sort of pain that we 
wreak on ourselves. Uh, that 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 stuck with me. Um, the other film which I really loved was a uh, it's a it's a new documentary called Same God. And it's it's the story of uh, Larisha Hawkins who was at Wheaton College, um, a black female professor who uh, wore a hijab in solidarity with Muslims and was eventually she was fired. Yeah, I remember this. Totally like flipped her life upside down. Um, and I'd followed that story years ago when it happened, um, but to hear her explain why she felt so compelled um, to stand her ground. I mean, she easily could have, and most people would have, she easily could have stepped back and said, you know, it's not worth it. Right. I, she could have towed the line and said, like, I still support Muslims. I apologize for crossing the line and doing something that was inappropriate. But she, like, really believed steadfastly in what she was doing as an act of justice and solidarity and, like, made a major sacrifice for that, for, like, sticking to her principles. And so I found that really, I found that really compelling to hear her rationale and her her conviction. Mm. Yeah, the integrity that people exhibit in moments of strife and when you're on the fence about going one way or the other, it is one of the most truly inspiring moments that you can ever witness. Yeah, and and we see so little of it today. So, I mean, even even situations like Colin Kaepernick's, like I just find so much inspiration um, through stories like that, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be something that I believe in. I mean, I. I stand on his side within his particular case, but like it doesn't even have to necessarily be on my side of the political spectrum. Sure. Like just that willingness to sacrifice in a way that I don't know speaks to one soul. Like I, yeah, I really love that. Mm. Your uh, Twitter bio reads: "Everyone needs a sick friend. I'm happy to be yours." So where can people find you if they want to know more about your work and go on a digital journey with you? <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I've had to remove my email for most platforms just because of safety precautions and the nastiness that comes. Um, but on, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I'm sick prof. That's, that's an easy way. Um, the new exciting thing is uh, there's a picture book coming out. Um, oh, I didn't even get to ask you about the picture book. Oh, please, no, that's please describe it. No, but that's that's like the next part of the journey. It's Excellent. I'm really excited about that. It's a, uh, it's about my running inspiration. He's the first hundred year old man to ever run an, a marathon. As a marathoner, <laughs> I am all about this book. Yeah, and and he's a Sikh. He grew up um, as a peasant in Punjab, and and it's it's this amazing story of a guy who uh, dealt with disability as a kid. He couldn't walk when he was a child, so then he couldn't go to school. Um, so he never learned to read or write. He's 108 now. He still can't read or write. Um, so, it, you know, it, it challenges all sorts of um, biases that we have around ableism, around classism, around racism, around ageism. Um, but his story is just so beautiful and powerful that, you know, I. I heard it and I was like, I have to, I have to write this as a children's book. Who was the uh, illustrator that worked with you on that? Uh, the illustrator's name is Baljinder Kaur. She's in the UK, and so this will be, 
um, the first the first children's book that we know of um, to feature a South Asian author, illustrator, and editor from a major press. So Amazing. I'm, yeah, super excited about When's that. it coming out? It comes out in the end of August. Excellent. So yeah. August 2020? August 2020. What's the yeah. title? It's called uh, Vojessing Keeps Going. His Excellent. Name, yeah, the man's name is Vojessing. And actually, the day he ran the marathon at the age of 100, that's the day I signed up for my first one. So like, cool. Yeah, I was, was that like... Almost it? shamed into it. So that was like <laughs> the reason why you did it? Yeah, I mean, I'd been I'd been sort of dabbling in distance running a bit more. Like, I was always a soccer player and a yeah. cross-country runner. Yeah. But when he crossed that finish line, I was like, I have no more excuses. It's time. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's what pushed me over the edge. Well, and every year, I mean, it gets harder and harder. Like, I just turned 36, and I joined a gym to force me to cross-train more yeah, so that I yeah. keep my core healthy with my back problems and stuff like that. I just, you know, I'm looking for every chance I can get now to stay as fit as I can because... I want to be here for a while. Yeah, exactly. And for me, I dealing with back problems too. And it's uh, I'll show you the elliptico before you go home. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, Doctor Singh, <laughs> I'm so glad that you could come over. I'm so glad that you were willing to take some time away from the family in Buffalo, New York. <laughs> Hello, it's awesome. I'm so glad that you reached out because you didn't have to, you no, know. And it just is so meaningful to me that um, you're willing to take some time and come over and sit with me at my house because uh, I have learned a lot and I look forward to continuing to follow your work um, for years to come. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I enjoy your program, so it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.